Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Sarah Germain Lilly, and on our show today, we discuss the issue of personal, family, and community safety, and whether owning or using a gun, even just carrying a gun, can, in fact, make you safer from assailants. So first, we have a GVP news update, and then interviews with Olivia Brown of Project Unloaded and Catherine Schweit, author and former FBI agent and expert on mass shootings. Finally, Sean Stefanik and I will be delighted to share with you our theater project, Enough Plays to End Gun Violence. And now our news update. Dear queers, ladies, gentlemen, those certain and uncertain of their gender, but affirmed in their humanity, I am thrilled to report that gun deaths declined in the U.S in 2022 and 2023. While gun death levels remain higher than the years before the 2020 spike in gun purchases and gun violence brought to us by the pandemic, any decline in deaths and injuries can be celebrated. These declines are seen most clearly in U.S. cities and urban areas, where violence intervention programs in hospitals and communities have begun to take effect. These programs bring professionals from health, mental health, and social support organizations together with community leaders. Community violence intervention programs are having an effect in reducing violence in urban communities. In our federal legislature, Republican elected officials continue to block safer gun laws, including safe storage and thorough background checks. But states are making progress even as gun industry representatives like the NSSF continue to file lawsuits to block the implementation of laws that protect our right to peaceably assemble, like the right of New York City to create gun-free zones in sensitive areas like Times Square. In other news, Mexico has retained its right to sue American gun manufacturers for their irresponsible marketing and distribution practices following American groups such as the Sandy Hook survivors in their efforts to assert that marketing practices illegally target young men and others at risk for committing violence. Mexico's challenge is based on similar grounds, albeit more complicated since it's brought by a foreign government. Attorney Jonathan Lowy, whose group Global Action on Gun Violence is representing Mexico in the suit, explained the argument in an interview with the Traces Chip Brownlee last week. We're arguing that PLACA, which is the gun industry immunity law, does not apply to cases such as this where the harm was caused abroad. And we're also arguing that PLACA, even if it's applied, does not bar the cases because there's illegal conduct. The First Circuit echoed Lowy in its ruling writing that the lawsuit plausibly alleges a type of claim that is statutorily exempt from PLACA's general prohibition. 
These lawsuits assert that the public's right to safety supersedes the gun industry's immunity from liability for the harm their products inflict. Next up, we have an interview with Olivia Brown of Project Unloaded. Olivia works with youth and Project Unloaded's mission is to communicate to the youth of America how dangerous weapons are and how they can be excluded from community life at their schools, at their sports fields, wherever youth gather. Welcome listeners to our podcast, Safer with a Gun. Uh, we are here today with Olivia Brown. She is the program manager of community partnerships for Project Unloaded. Olivia, can you tell us a little bit about your work and your role at Project Unloaded? Absolutely. So Project Unloaded is at its core a gun violence prevention organization whose mission is to save lives by changing gun culture. And when we say gun culture, people are always like, what does that mean? In America, there is a big myth that people believe. And at the core of the culture, quote unquote, that I'm talking about is this idea that guns make people safer. And it is a myth because we know that where there are more guns, there's more gun violence. And in turn, guns keep communities and people less safe and puts them at, at greater risk. And what we do at Project Unloaded is kind of tackling that myth head on, especially for young people. What we've learned through research and everything that we do at Project Unloaded is rooted in research is that young people especially can acknowledge that guns make them less safe and keep their communities less safe. But at the same time, they still want one and could see themselves owning one. And that is interesting, that like parallel, that paradox is interesting um, because at the core, like I said, people in research shows that guns do not keep communities safer. So we really tackle that myth, especially for young people, specifically 13 to 17 year olds um, through creative cultural campaigns, large scale cultural campaigns. And we harness the power of social media to reach young people where they are on their digital channels and in their communities with information that empowers them to choose on their own to not own or carry a gun. We are really kind of playing the long game. Another question that we typically get is, does this work? Is there a model for what you do? And there is. So folks will oftentimes remember really vividly the work of the Truth Initiative and smoking cessation campaigns across organizations uh, from a couple decades ago and even today where a lot of the work was just educating folks about the dangers of cigarettes. And if you ask teenagers 30 years ago, if they smoked cigarettes, the answers was likely yes, and that they didn't plan on stopping. Um, and all of that work where folks and organizations were educating folks and, and kind of showing them the light has manifested today where teenagers, if you ask them if they are smoking cigarettes, they're like, what are you even saying to me? <laughs> The answer is absolutely not. Um, and that's what we're hoping to do. 
it's a generational shift that we're hoping to undergo and we're hoping to be a big part of, but something that public health professors of my past used to say is that, you know, public health is working when like no one questions anything, when things start to feel second nature. And I imagine for our work that eventually, as we continue to empower teenagers and young people, as we continue to share the facts that if you ask a teenager in 20 years, will they own a gun? The answer will be so second nature that it's like, why would you ask me that? I know that guns make me less safe. So that is our work. My job at Project Unloaded is program manager of community partnerships. So I lead all of our community facing work, though most of what we do is online um, and we're reaching teenagers in their digital communities. We're also reaching them on the ground in real life and with organizations that they work with and that they trust. Um, and I get to kind of spearhead all of that work so far. Great. We're down to the matter. We're talking about carrying guns and the difference between feeling safe and actually being safer. And last year's Project Unloaded campaign is called Snug, Safer Not Using a Gun. But suppose I'm a teenage girl who's afraid of being assaulted. Why would I be safer not using a gun or in this case, carrying one? It's a great question. And, and honestly, we know that most people, regardless of their circumstance or identity, are buying guns um, because of self-defense and because they want the idea of safety. And the work that we do is always a fine line between empathy or finding the empathy in knowing that people are buying guns because they want to feel safer full stop period people are buying guns because they want to feel safer regardless of their circumstances so we balance the empathy between knowing that we want to feel safe but the reality of knowing that guns make us less safe and where there are more guns in our communities we are less safe whether you end up using a gun for self-defense or not the reality is that once you have a gun, there is a gun in your community. And that comes with a host of risks. And even in a self-defense situation that presents its own set of risks, um, people, when they are kind of confronted by a, an assailant or someone who is looking to assault them, a gun oftentimes raises the stakes. When they have a gun, it raises the stakes and you're more likely to be injured um, when you have a gun on your person during an assault, right? So we know these things. We also know that when someone purchases a gun, the leading cause of death for them a year after they've had their gun is suicide. So guns come with a host of experiences. And I am always very mindful, especially in our community facing work, especially in the work that is, um, for students and teens at the heart of this epidemic that we experience, I'm always very mindful to be empathetic, but I think what I try to lead with and what we try to lead with at Project Unloaded is the fact that ultimately guns come with a host of risks that though you think having one keeps you safer, ultimately the risk in the moment, in, in a heightened moment and the risk beyond that heightened moment are greater than, than the perception that they're, they're keeping you safe. Got it. Thank you. 
I love the way that your campaigns use team-friendly colors, photos, and interactive features to deliver the reality-based message. The new campaign for 2024 is called Guns Change the Story. Why does the messaging for inner city youth and suburban youth differ? That's a great question. So Guns Change the Story was recently launched in December of 2023 and comes on the heels like everything that we do at Project Unloaded of lots and lots of research with teenagers. So what we found through rounds of conversations, um, listening conversations, focus groups, and lots of other research devices was that teens, the black and brown teens and communities that experience elevated rates of gun violence that Guns Change the Story is trying to reach, they prioritize the information rather than all of the like bells and whistles of a campaign. They want to see the facts, the numbers, the stats. They want to see teams that look like them in scenarios that are like theirs. And um, though Snug has been super successful, we've reached, reached just over 3 millions of teens so far and are reaching more and more every day. Yes, lots of teens have responded super strongly to Snug and even Teens in communities that experience elevated rates of gun violence are responding super strongly to Snug, um, and Snug is amazing. And I might be a little biased in saying that, but Snug is amazing. But I think it's not about which is better or worse. It's about for this population, we know that their circumstances are different. So we want to be super mindful in creating something that that feels really relevant. And if folks wanted to read kind of the research product that came from all of the rounds of research that we did that supported Guns Change the Story, they can check out our uh, research report called Stay Inside. It's on our website linked under press. So you can see kind of what the students were saying and how that research, research ends up translating into what has become Guns Change the Story. And it's even something that I've heard really closely in our community partnerships. So last summer, we piloted our community partner program in Chicago alongside um, Chicago Public Schools and another organization called After School Matters. One of the things that we did was a six-week summer intensive program where students were kind of tasked to become marketing professionals over the summer. And over the course of that six weeks, those students were to build their own social media campaign and kind of mirror the work that we do at Project Unloaded, where they were taking facts and, and interviews that they had done and research that they were doing to build something that was relevant to teenagers like them who lived on the south and west side of Chicago, where the rates of gun violence are elevated and they do experience this at a rate that is disproportionate to other teenagers in the country. And those students kind of mirror what we heard in research where they were saying, I wanna make something real. I wanna make something powerful. I wanna make something that like will make someone stop. And the way to that wasn't bright colors and graphics or, you know, super fun, um, lighthearted even content the way to that was like how do I get to the meat and the root and how do I be as powerful and, and leave as lasting of a message as possible um, and some of the information and content that they had created for their own mock campaigns kind of reflected what guns change the story ended up being um, and there is a place for our beautiful bright colors and even for our students and teens and youth who will 
interact with our work in communities that experience elevated rates of gun violence, they aren't a monolith. They they love bright colors as much as any other teenager. But I think through our research and through just kind of things that I've learned anecdotally, like what is more important is to be honest and real. And they've responded well so far. The teenagers across our social media campaigns and our community partner programs, these teenagers who interact with our campaigns are actually when you survey them saying that they are less likely to carry a gun in the future. And little by little, we're noticing that they are feeling a lot more confident to have conversations about guns. They feel a lot more equipped with knowledge to really kind of confront their own beliefs and challenge themselves. So it, it is working. And little by little, day by day, as we do this work, we see that there are you know, the, the wheels are turning a little bit more every day. So Yeah, it's great. And it's so creative. I just, I loved um, using the Mad Lib, for example, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, and the real life situations yeah. and how, how you can change. I don't know. There's something just fascinating about that, especially to teen minds, being able yeah. to change the meaning and the context of the whole situation by changing a word. So brilliant. How about our listeners, how can they get access to your resources and support Project Unloaded? Absolutely. So Project Unloaded is online. Please follow us at Project Unloaded everywhere. Instagram and TikTok are our main channels. But of course, we also have Twitter. Um, on our website, projectunloaded.org, we have lots of resources that are downloadable, that are shareable. We are also working on expanding our community partner programs. And if, if anyone is interested in kind of connecting with me on that work a little bit closer, they can reach out to me. All of my information is on the Project Unloaded website as well. But we're also just thinking about how to be effective to teens, young people, the people who interact with them beyond our social. And we're always kind of open and receptive to ideas and I love having conversations with folks around the country about how we can kind of work together. So please reach out to me and make sure you sign up to our newsletter. We are also on kind of the beginning stages or have started the beginning stages of a text campaign. So if you want us to text you and you can text us back, feel free to go to our website and sign up for that as well. <laughs> Great. You know, it's, it's come, I, I used to be so uh, like, you know, telling people, especially my colleagues, like, well, I don't text. Would you please put it in an email? It's difficult for me to text. <laughs> I do have diff a, a physical difficulty that makes it hard to text, but now I'm texting adults. Okay. <laughs> nobody, nobody is on their email 24 seven. And also yeah. that long email, if it doesn't say what you need to, it doesn't, if it doesn't yeah. get the ask in the first three sentences, you know, yeah. scratch it off. This is something that teens have given us really uh, is pushing us into the moment and the immediacy yeah. of communication with texting. So yes, this is great. In our youth council, we have we work with teenagers beyond the students that we work with in Chicago and in other cities. We work with a national council who advises on all of our work. Our youth council sends some of those text messages. So you are talking to a teen about a teen issue in a teen friendly way at the very least when you get text messages from us. So.
definitely being pushed into the future for sure. Yeah. Well, it's terrific work. Um, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to say to us before we uh, end our, our interview today? If I could leave the audience with anything else, remember that guns makes us less safe. More guns in our communities equal more gun violence. And together, if we are committed to educating ourselves, having the difficult conversations and working with each other to, to tackle this issue and to change the narrative around guns, we can. And again, shameless plug, follow us on all of our social media to keep in touch at projectunloaded.org. And thank you so much again for, for having me and reaching out. Well, thanks so much for your time, your work, and for being with us today and sharing this with our listeners. Olivia Brown, Program Manager of Community Partnerships at Project Unloaded. You rock. Thank you. This is Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. You can hear us on any podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Subscribe and leave a message after you listen. Tell us what you love about Radio Gag or what really makes you gag about gun violence. We also urge you to get involved by joining a gun violence prevention group such as Gays Against Guns, Change the Ref, or Moms Demand Action. I recently read How to Talk with Anyone About Guns by Katherine Schweit. I found out about this book from the Giffords Gun Owners for Safety Facebook group. Thank you, Giffords Gun Owners, and thank you, Catherine Schweit, for opening up the ways that we can talk to people, even people who don't agree with us about these matters that affect our lives, that affect our health, that impact our youth. Here's our interview. Let's have a listen. Hi, everybody. We are so excited to have here on Radio Gag, Catherine Schweit. She is a former FBI agent. She is author of the book, Stop the Killing, and How to Talk About Guns with Anyone. So I really wanted to have her on this podcast where we're talking about these questions of, are you safer with a gun? How do you keep yourself safe? What is the difference between feeling safe and actually being safe? So welcome, Catherine Schweit. We are so honored to have you here today. Oh, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. I There's nothing more important to me than sharing the message, sharing what I know, and also what you just mentioned, which is a calming, uh, to me, I always, my newsletter is called Calming the Chaos. I mean, pe I want people to be, to be informed because they, that will help them to be more calm. And, and we, no one, no one needs a hectic life these days. We have so many ways that we can calm things down about one of those topics that really scares people, which is guns. Thank you. Tell us about your work. Tell us about the, uh, the book, how to talk about guns with anyone. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of fell into it by mistake. I'm actually a writer by trade. Like in my heart, I'm really just a writer. And I had worked, you know, through college and, and as a journalist, as a young newspaper reporter in Chicago, and then kind of fell into the prosecutor's office and became a prosecutor and then fell into the FBI, 
which probably not a lot of people confess to. Um, and so I ended up going to the FBI and I w was an agent for 20 years. But after um, 15 years, the Sandy Hook shooting happened up in Connecticut, as we all know, and 20 children, six women uh, murdered. And the job of, of owning what we were going to do about it with regard to the FBI fell on my shoulders and I you know, I started to learn everything I could. I was a national security uh, agent, but suddenly I wasn't. I was uh, was the all things mass shootings, all things school shootings, all things everything. So I just started to learn and learn and learn as much as I could and talk to so many people. I talked to parents whose kids were murdered and, you know, prince, principal of Columbine High School has become a friend of mine, the most seriously injured person at Virginia Tech. Christine Anderson has become a friend. Um, so many people who have been impacted by gun violence in a very public way, which I think is a, you know, a little different, but gun violence is gun violence. And after I was um, mandatory at the FBI, so I had to retire in 17. And I kind of thought I would go on about my merry way and become a writer again. Uh, so I started working on a couple of books and this really didn't go away. And the shootings, the public shootings seemed to continue. The active shooters seemed to continue. And, so even though I had worked on those in the FBI and written some research for the FBI, we pushed out run, hide, fight. It never really, never really ended. So I thought, so actually I was writing and my book agent said, please write a book and get all this stuff out of your head about all this shooting stuff so that you can go back to what you were really writing. So I wrote the first, my first book, which was Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. But the shootings continued and continued and continued. And then about a year or so ago, people, I really felt like everybody who I spoke to, I had to kind of educate about guns. And I had to educate them from the perspective of what I learned about guns. It wasn't that I knew everything about them. It's that so many things that people were saying were what they'd heard on social media, or they'd read in some news story, or they their friend had said, and that they were kind of inaccurate pieces of information about guns and gun violence. And it and it got to be kind of frustrating because I didn't feel like, you know, you can't have a conversation if you don't know some of the some of the facts. Like more people die of firearms violence in the United States from suicide than homicide. But most people don't know that. More people die, most is these mass shootings, uh, 50 to 60% of them at least are domestic violence related. So when we look at, you know, guns and where our threat is, and where our um, focus should be in different areas. I think you have to know the facts. You have to know the facts about buying guns and selling guns and manufacturing guns and things like that. So that's why I ended up writing the book. It's kind of a kind of a way to share what I was learning along the way. Yeah, it's great the way that you break it down, you know, and uh, you make it really easy with the examples, which I've heard a million times, right? Yeah, my publisher said. Well, if you're going to have a book that's called How to Talk About Guns with Anyone, you should probably have some tucking in it. And so we actually, if you if you get a chance to see the book, we actually have talk bubbles in it that say, you know, when someone says this, what's a good answer back? When someone says, I don't want a gun in my house, what do you answer back? When somebody says, I need my gun for protection, what's a good way to answer back so that you can carry the conversation on instead of... Um, instead of being on opposing uh, sides of the table. Yeah, and you go back and forth. 
you know, you, you will play the devil's advocate, you know, and uh, talk from the point of view of the owner, um, talk about the point of view of the Second Amendment person, and talk uh, uh, from the point of view of the activist. And it's, it's really, really helpful, first of all, to uh, see both of those things lined up side by side and realize, you know, that, okay, what side of the fence am I on? And how do I come across? And how can I make a bridge? Yeah, I think the bridge is the important part because I think if you looked at, um, I think I, the advantage that I have coming to the table is that I carried a gun for 20 years as the, at the FBI. So when somebody says, are you gun or anti-gun? I can't really answer that question because uh, it's more complicated um, than that. In my mind, it's way more complicated than that. Um, and so certainly I don't want guns to kill anyone. Right to me, I'm I'm against uh, troubled people having guns. We need to find ways to keep troubled people uh, away from guns, and there are ways that we can do that. But if you said um, one extreme side, uh, as my co-podcaster said, I do a podcast called "Stop the Killing," and my co-podcaster lives in London. She was born in New Zealand, and she says she said to me on the very first podcast, "What is it with your?" guns in your country. What is the big deal? Why do you have all those guns? And now I think she understands that it's more nuanced than that. But when someone says we should just get rid of all the guns, I say there are 350, there are 320 million people in the United States and there's probably 450 million guns. Who, who is going to take away 450 million guns? Uh, well, even if you pay people for them, what are you going to do with them? Who's going to collect them? Do you think you're going to take them from the people who don't want to give them up? So I'm I'm very practical. You, you get that when you come from a big Irish Catholic family, I think. I'm very practical. And um, I don't think that the answer is, oh, we should get rid of all the guns because we're past that. We have twice as many guns as we did, you know, 40 years ago. And so we, we, that horse is out of the barn. So now we have to come up with different and practical answers. And when you're on the other side, the most extreme on the other side, where you say, I should have a right to have any gun to do anything I want with, take it anywhere, that doesn't really comply with our constitutional views of um, everybody having equal rights. Um, and, you know, equal rights are not pie, right? You can't, you don't, get, because you get some rights doesn't take some rights away from another. It's not like a piece of pie. Everybody gets 100% of their constitutional rights. And that means that your rights, and, and this is the lawyer in me, but you know your rights um, have to stop or yield uh, somewhat when you infringe on other people's rights. So I think that's a, that's a nut that's tough to crack for some uh, gun owners who want to, you know, I've talked to plenty of people who say, I think you should be able to have any gun and they mean like cannons and tanks and surface-to-air missiles. So I think they're really thinking, they're kind of arguing on the extreme to make their point, so to speak, and pound their fist on the table. And pounding your fist on the table and arguing in the extremes really doesn't get us there. So what I tried to work on in the book was the, the stuff that's in between, the stuff that when, when I'm in the bar, right, you know, when I'm out with friends, um, when we're sitting around at the dinner table, uh, can add to the conversation and help people come together. Yeah, people coming together and people. I'm re really feeling these days that 
you know, people keep us safer. It's not guns that keep us safer. Mm -hmm. Um, So we want to talk about carrying guns and the difference between feeling safe and actually being safer. And we've both heard people say, and my students for many years, saying that they need a gun for protection. So how effective are guns when it comes to keeping us safe from threats like robbers and attackers? Well, I I have a couple of answers to that. And I think they're very practical. As I said, I'm a very practical person. First of all, if you want to carry a gun, you better know what you're doing with it. I carried a gun for 20 years. I still have a gun. I still carry it sometimes. Um, Carrying a gun is a huge responsibility, huge responsibility. Every time you load or unload a gun, you can fire it accidentally. We had last year, year before last, Center for Disease Control and Prevention said we had uh, about, we, we have about 100 people who died from active shooter incidents, these public mass shootings in, in, in 2022, but we had 500 people die from accidental discharges of guns. Think about you pick up the gun, it discharges and hits your friend, kills your mother, children who find guns in closets, which is an incredibly common but sad thing. So it's a huge responsibility to own a gun, to carry it around, to know how to use it. I mean, I carried all the time, 24 hours a day, you know, unless I was sleeping, I carried a gun and still struggled, you know, every time I was out in a public bathroom and needed to you know, put my gun someplace safe while well, I went to the bathroom. And when you're on a, on a train and you move through a town, the park doesn't allow guns and you're walking to pick your kid up from school and the school has a sign on the door that says no guns allowed. So it's really tricky to know all the laws and to not get yourself in trouble. But then the other thing about, I would say, so I said two, but there's really three things. Because the next thing I would say is if you decide to carry a gun, you have to be willing to use it. I, as an agent, I would never pull out a gun unless I was willing to use it. And that meant killing another person. And my training, which was constant, helped me to have the confidence to aim at just the person I was pointing the gun at. But you know, bullets go through people and into the next person and the next person. They go through walls and into the next next room. The shooting at Aurora Theater, the shooter was on and came into Theater 9, and people in Theater 8 were hit by bullets. You know, bullets travel as, until they until they come up to a target where they really have to stop. So if you fire eight rounds or six rounds out of your handgun or four rounds out of your handgun that you pull out because you're freaked out, and the person that you're pointing it at isn't able to take the gun away from you, uh, and you fire... Where are those rounds going if you miss? Because law enforcement hits their round, hits their mark 30 to 40% of the time, and they're good at what they do compared to the rest of the country. So you may think you're the most crackerjack shot, but shooting at a paper target is really different than pointing your gun at a person. And firing and missing that person means you could hit somebody behind them. So that's two. The third thing is just simply the idea of would you have the ability to get it out and fire it? Now, I'm not saying don't carry a gun if you want to carry a gun. That is your personal choice. But when you carry a gun and you have the um, ability to get it out and fire it and hit your target, um, 
because you choose to do that and the and the target doesn't take the gun from you because even an agent agents law enforcement is taught when you get into a gunfight it's because you brought a gun to the gunfight if you can't retain your gun it's going to be used against you um and so you know you we learn how uh, weapons retention i can tell you how to keep my gun safely on my person and probably something who's carrying a gun tucked in a holster in their jeans on the subway is not has not been trained in um but if you choose to do that and you fire a gun in most of the in most of the country you can carry a gun legally in certain places but that doesn't mean you can shoot that gun so you may be charged with murder or involuntary manslaughter or aggravated assault or some of these other charges and when you are even if you are innocent even if you are you know quote unquote found innocent or even if you were justified you still have to go through an entire legal system of being charged and having uh, indictments against you or charges brought against you having to hire a lawyer um so it is very complicated to carry a gun and i'm sorry to go on for so long about it but i just want people who care choose to carry a gun to to understand the the complexity of it that's all Super fan, you are still listening to Radio Gag, and thank you because we got something coming up that you do not want to miss. Yeah, we're talking to Katherine Schweit, but just wait in a minute. She really gets down and dirty when I ask her how we can keep ourselves safer with carrying a gun. I could not believe her answer. She blows me away. She's probably going to blow you away as well. So uh, everybody, if you need to stop, get yourself a cup of coffee, you know, put us on pause, but come right back because you're going to be riveted when this expert tells us the real deal about safety and carrying guns. Are you safer with a gun? Let's hear what Catherine has to say. Your perspective, what you say is what we want to hear. Very, very valuable. And um, I was going to ask you, and I think it fits right in. um, Once we make the decision to carry a gun, how can we keep ourselves as safe as possible? Well, it is a, it is a question of um, if you, I mean, if I don't, I really do not, advocate you carrying uh, anybody carrying a gun unless they are in if you carry it because you say i need to carry this for protection and i'm only carrying it for protection and i don't really want to carry it you shouldn't carry it because you don't know how to use it you're not going to keep your training up or you're not going to get any training you're just going to carry something that is going to make you more nervous and it's not going to make you safer and you're not going to be able to pull it out fast enough and point it at somebody and, and other people are going to find it, you know, more than half of the people in the United States who are killed by firearms are, are, are suicides, right? Somebody else is going to find it. They're going to borrow it, steal it. So don't carry a gun if you're not interested in carrying a gun because it, because of the, of the workload it is, but also do you want your gun to be stolen and used in a murder someplace else? Do you want your gun to be stolen? Do you want somebody who's a friend of yours, who's depressed to lift that gun to their head and kill themselves. I had a, a friend who committed suicide in an in another friend's apartment, and uh, with with a service pistol, um, with the other friend's service pistol. I mean, it was devastating for all of us. Um, and 
you know, you can't, you can't undo that. Right. So don't, if, if, but if you want to carry a gun for protection, then it's your responsibility to get the training, to keep it locked up, to know where it is at all times and things like that. And that, and that's fine. Um, because that secured guns is, is one of those, one of those things that we should be abdicating for, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and against some of them, like I mentioned, just uh, the fact that uh, more people die from firearms violence from suicide than not accidental discharges than than homicides in the United States. Um, you know, 80% of the people who die from firearms deaths are men, right? Uh, so they're the largest group of people who die from firearms in the United States are suicides over the age of 65. So there's a lot of risks. And when you're talking about protecting yourself, once you get the gun, great. What are you going to do with it? Where are you going to carry it? How long are you going to carry it? What if your dad is at your house? What if he, what if somebody else finds it? Right. So you can carry it for protection. Um, but you should also make a plan to not carry it anymore, I guess is what I would say. Because you may think it's a good idea, but it's it's an astonishing responsibility to carry. And I don't think that we want, you know, especially I think about places like New York City, you know, 80% of the people in the United States live in, ur in urban or suburban communities. So um, I don't want to go into a library and have somebody who doesn't know how to carry a gun pull out a gun and start firing because they're afraid of somebody. I don't want somebody, guns escalate a situation immediately. Five times more women die from domestic violence situations um, where there's a gun present. So um, it's just, it, it, they, it immediately ratchets up a confrontation into a life and death situation. And that's a big responsibility to carry around on your shoulders all the time. You know, I never, you know, agents, office, police officers, you know, never pull their gun out as a threat but civilians do. And the chance that you're going to run into one of these public shootings, most, most shootings that we're all afraid of are actually neighborhood conflicts, uh, murder suicides that involve domestic violence situations. Um, people who uh, go into a business and kill their boss because they got fired. Um, kids who are middle school and high school students who go back to their middle school or high school with a stolen gun from their family's house and shoot it up. The celebrated ones that we hear about on these, uh, these news are, are such a rarity. Mass shootings, these public mass shootings that we're so afraid of are two one hundredths of a percent. So I think fear, you know, we create this huge fear for there's a shooter around every corner when, the, when there isn't, uh, first of all. And then you put this burden on yourself to carry a gun all the time in case there might be somebody. And it's, you know, how we're living with that fear and how it's amped up to me, that is terrorism, you know, because like you, we can look at the facts, but reading, hearing, being close to one mass shooting, I'm scared for days. It, 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 there, you know, I, I mean, the ripple effect, the amplification, very effective tool of uh, for uh, making people afraid. Um, yeah, I think that's true. When you look at our shooters, too, when you look at our shooters in these most celebrated shootings, um, there are individuals who have their own issues. And but there are people who exacerbate that. There's parents in Michigan going on trial because they bought their 15 year old a gun and then he went into school and murdered people. 
um, those parents are are um, being charged with involuntary manslaughter. But the son who was convicted of the murder was convicted of terrorism. He pled guilty to terrorism, not just murder, because they the prosecutor there, Karen McDonald, who is brilliant in Oakland County outside of Detroit, suggested that uh, in her filings to the court that he terrorized the school and they counted the number of people who were in the school and were terrorized by that shooting. And I think it is definitely true because it's, uh, I mean, I completely agree with what you say because we all know that shootings happen, homicides happen around the country. And we somehow think we know why that happens. Gang conflict, drug conflicts, man who kills his you know, girlfriend, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances are. In these, in the public mass shootings, in the public shootings, we don't know why it happens. And that's the terrorizing part about it. But they are the most infrequent. All of those shootings are less than 1%. And, and so that should give you pause about whether you want to add to the gun population and buy a gun. Yeah. What direction would you like to see us gun violence prevention uh, activists focus on for effective legislation that could just reduce injuries and deaths? Well, I think that's a good question because I do get asked that a lot, you know, and I, uh, I always say I live in Washington, D.C. I'm not a politician and there's plenty of people arguing those points because I do try to uh, bring both sides uh not that I think it's two sides, but I try to bring all the sides uh, to the table. And that requires me to try to have a more neutral hand. But I think in the book, what I tried to do, I, I didn't do this initially. And then in the book, when I started, I, first of all, it's a, it's a paperback. It's a soft covered book. Um, that's not very long. My publisher said, you can't, you can't write a book that's 30,000 words. And I said, yes, I can. And they said, no, that's too short. And I said, no, I, I think it's plenty. You know, we're just, I'm trying to just say what we need to say. So, I, you know, I, I wanted to just inform and I wrote a book that said, here's, here's what the rules are about buying a gun. Here's what the rules are about backgrounds. Here's what the rules are about, you know, here's what the U.S. Supreme Court has said in Heller, in, 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 the, in the New York pistol case, so that people would get the information. But then as I was kind of finishing the book, I realized that, um, I really needed to say, I needed to answer just that question. What are the things that are more likely to happen? What are the things that are less likely to happen? Not because I can influence them or I want to, but I have, so I actually have chapters, two chapters at the end of the book, which is when you write your own books, you can do this. I wrote a chapter called not going to happen. And I said, these are the things that are not going to happen. So please stop wasting oxygen discussing them. <laughs> and those are things like repeal the Second Amendment. I know people say that and it sounds ideal, but I wrote in the book, here's what it takes to repeal an amendment. And here's how many times it's successfully been done in the United States and here's how long it took. And, and, um, and the answer to that is one, and then it had to be reversed anyway. And long after people wanted it reversed, it took so much longer to get it reversed. Um, so it's not practical to say, we're going to take all the guns away in the United States. And I explain why. It's not practical to say we're going to repeal the Second Amendment. And I explain why. These are just my opinions, but based, I hope, based on fact. I always try to do everything uh, based on fact and, and, and explain where I got that information. So there, uh, the idea that we might 
I hear that one of the other things I hear all the time, we need to just ban all automatic weapons, which they really mean semi-automatic, automatic weapons and confiscate all the weapons like they did in Australia. Well, that is a very common tale. Have you heard that plenty of times? Uh, oh yeah. Plenty of times. That's because you don't know what they did in Australia. I mean, I don't mean you personally, but I mean, in general, people don't really know what happened in Australia. Um, and they don't know what that took. First of all, Australia is a tiny country, um, which is where my co-podcaster is from. The Christchurch shooting, which was five years ago um, at the mosques in, in that I just worked with the country of New Zealand to do a report on that shooting um, for them. Uh, after the the shootings in us in 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 Australia, um, they they took twenty percent of the guns. That was it. Twenty percent of the guns. So if we took twenty percent of the guns away from the United States, just these particular guns, and people voluntarily did that. First of all, people in Australia did that, right? People they agreed to do that. There there are too many gun owners in the United States who are not going to agree to do that. So it's not practical. But also they only removed twenty percent of the guns. So if we did exactly what Australia did, we'd have 80 million gun less guns in the United States, which means we'd still have more than 300 million guns. So it's not a, in addition to that, paying for it in order to buy, well, I'll just let you read the book, but I'm just saying, you know, we'd have to have the money available to, to pay people back for the guns that we're taking from them, which is the policy, you know, that, that people are advocating, we'll just buy them back. Um, so I think it's better to, uh, that's the reason I wrote the not gonna happen, I think it's better to focus on the what might happen, right? So so on the what might happen, there are a lot of things that I thought, okay, what are the things that we realistically, you know, might happen? I think there are certain things. What I mentioned before about securing weapons, that might happen. And I think that's really important. And when we know that so many people die from suicide, so many people die from unintentional uh, deaths because they find the guns. And this is, I'm just talking about deaths. I mean, firearms injuries are are times, times, times more, right? I'm just talking about firearms deaths. So if we do a better job of securing guns, which is why I don't want somebody to buy a gun if they don't, sorry, if I don't, if they don't uh, know how to handle it. Um, that That's one thing, secure gun laws, secure storage in homes. Um, and people say, well, I want to have my guns available. You know, my guns are stored securely and they're available to me. I know how to get to my guns. And so, you know, that's a kind of not really a, uh, that's not an argument that a true gun owner should be able to make. But I also think we need to do more extensive work on suicide prevention. We need to have better threat assessment teams. Um, some of these are legislative. Many states have legislated the uh, mandatory creation of mental health services, domestic violence services. But I think that a lot of those are lip service. We don't really do the work. We, we tell a county it has to have um, domestic violence uh, resources, and it has to have services for people who have suicide, but it took us until this year to get a suicide hotline, right, in the United States. So um, so we have a long ways to go to do that in terms of information. Um, and I know you asked me about legislation, but I think that there's so much more we can do um, in advocacy, which is, you know, hello, your middle name, right? So, um, but legislatively, um, Red flag laws are effective. We know that um, what I think are that don't exist, but I talk about enhanced red flag laws, which is my theory of how red flag laws should be changed. Um, 
we need, there is a bill right now in the house on the secured firearms. And you know what? It sounds like it's called the secure firearms act. And you think, Oh, so you know, that's cool. People have to secure their guns. No, this is a, such a simple bill and it has, hasn't been passed. It says, if you're a firearms seller, when you close your shop up at night, you must secure the guns. I do not think that that's a big ask. Why is the law like that not passed? Because most guns are stolen from firearms dealers. That's where the thefts come from. So why would we not advocate for the Secure Firearms Act? That's a, that should be a freebie to ask. And so why is a why are gun who who is who is opposing that? Is I guess what I'm saying. Who would oppose that? So I think yeah. that's the, those are the kind of things that um, it, from a legislative standpoint, everybody call your legislator and say. I want the Secure Firearms Act passed because the guns that are stolen out of those stores in multiple numbers are the guns that are on the street and that are causing uh, that are causing homicides. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, there are other things that could be done um, that are legislative. Uh, well, here's one example of the local legislative thing that I thought was really good. Um, in San Jose, California, if you want to own a gun, you have to have insurance for it, liability insurance. They're the only state, I think, uh, the only city in this country I know right now doing that. It's been enforced for about a year. It says, if you want to have a gun and something might happen that's going to cause a disturbance, you're responsible for the financial fallout, not the city, not the government, not the public. Love that. So we can pass, uh, you know, a requirement that a gun owner has proof of insurance for their guns. Most guns in the United States remain locked in gun vaults safely away. And most gun owners, um, you know, uh, most gun owners never shoot most all of the guns they own. And most gun owners um, are, are all law abiding when it comes to gun rights and regulations. They're not running out and shooting all their guns. So we're really trying to capture guns that end up in the hands of troubled people. And that's, I guess, what I keep going back to. If there's a piece of legislation that says guns in the hands of troubled people, uh, last year, when we, uh, when the, when President Biden signed into law the new um, laws for the first laws, you know, in in decades uh, involving guns, uh, safety, and gun uh, regulations, um, year before, one of those regulations changed the rules for people under the age of 21 to buy guns. And it didn't prevent them from buying guns. What it said was, if you're under the age of 21, we're going to do a more thorough background check. And we're going to extend that background check as much as to 10 days to find out whether or not you should or shouldn't uh, be able to get that gun. And that includes going back mandatory and checking your state uh, records, your state uh, police records, but also your state mental health records to see whether or not there was anything. They call them a U21 check, U21 check. And in the first um, handful of weeks, as the federal government was gearing up that program, it's run through the FBI. I called one of my um, one of my friends at the FBI, who I, I know, you know, lots of years in the FBI, called and said, "How's U twenty one going? Is it is it working? Uh, I know it's going to go into effect January one. Uh, so, and it went into you know it just went into effect uh, completely, right? This year, I said, "How's it going?" And they said, "Well, we're uh, we're like eight weeks into it." And we've only done, we only have a handful of states that are bring, uh, that are online. But in the handful of states that are online, we've already uh, conducted 
20,000 U21 checks. 20,000 U21 checks, meaning kids under the age 21 or under were in eight weeks in five states. There were 20,000 youth, you know, what I consider to be fairly young people wanting to buy a gun. And we have a lot, everybody thinks a gun is the solution now because we've created a gun culture. During the pandemic, 60 million guns, you know, let's let's dump more guns out there onto the, let's dump more guns out onto the, onto the pavement. More guns don't seem to be helping. If more guns helped, we would be the safest country in the world, but um, we are not by far, um, even though we have, uh, even though other countries, there are a handful of other countries that have the gun per capita that we have, um, but they do not have the violence that we have. So um, that tells me that the guns that we do have out there are not in the right hands. So legislatively, anything we can do to check on that red flag laws, or that's my long answer, sorry, red flag laws or U21s or better background checks, more thorough background checks, the Secure Firearms Act to prevent gun sellers from leaving the guns that are in their shops unsecured. There's also a whole slew of legislative efforts that would support the ATF. Uh, we asked the ATF to govern uh, guns, but we don't fund them. They didn't have a director for like six years. Somebody does a, when somebody comes in to buy a gun, there's a background check that's done. In a, if you have an FFL, if you're a fi firearms licensed dealer and you, the FBI uh, background, or, you know, there's other state systems too, but in general, this is just a three day window. So most of the guns, you know, 90% of them uh, go out the door right away. The background check comes back. Yes, it's fine. He can buy the gun. In, in, a, in some cases, a small percentage of cases, um, which I roll all the numbers out in the book, um, but in a small number of cases, the background check takes longer than that. If it takes longer than three days, the gun can automatically go to the buyer, whether or not he's allowed or she's allowed to buy the gun. The person, whether they're where they are, whether or not they are allowed to buy the gun. And what happened? What happened is, once a gun got out and it was used by a person who wasn't allowed to purchase the gun, Congress calls the FBI and says, "Well, how did this happen?" The FBI says, "Look, your law says we have to let the guns go. The firearms people can let the guns go." Well, they, Congress said, how often does that happen? They said, well, in this time period, 6,000 guns went out to people who, when we finished the background check days later, should never have been able to get the guns. And Congress said, well, what do you do about that? And they said, well, then we go to the ATF and we ask the ATF to go find the person and get the gun back. So I mean, any system that's designed to have that as a solution is not really a good system and you know, complain all you want. Uh, it's hard to work in that environment and try to get things done sometimes. And you know, that's a perfect example of we set up a lot of laws, but we, you know, we don't fund them. We don't, you know, we don't uh, follow up to see whether those are practical laws. So I think we just have to keep throwing pieces of you know spaghetti at the wall until we find some of the right combinations to see some of the numbers come down. Firms deaths have continued to rise, even though the medical profession is better at dealing with it than ever before. There's no country that has better skilled surgeons when it comes to bullet wounds. Um, mass shootings, uh, public mass shootings, active shooters uh, went down last year. And um, so maybe we're seeing some turn on the tide there. 
But as long as firearms deaths continue to go up until we continue to, until we stop wanting to live in a gun culture and choose to own uh, a safer community, uh, we're always going to face this challenge. Catherine Schweit, I could listen to you all day. This is fabulous. Thank you so, so much for being here. And thank you most of all for being one of the people who keeps us safer. Thanks for all you do. Wow, you are amazing. You've been listening to Catherine Schweit and Olivia Brown and Sarah Lilly talk about all these things. So listen, we have a real treat for you. You've been listening so long. We are going to invite you to meet with us in person at Theater for the New City. We are going to be there uh, February 22nd to 25th, presenting an amazing evening of enough plays to end gun violence. Please join us for this project in New York City at Theater for the New City, 155 First Avenue. You're going to hear all the dish in a minute from me and Sean Stefanik. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, so much of what we do with Gays Against Guns is about or centered around having a conversation about guns and gun violence and about being able to ask about it in a way that can be understood and, and in a way that we can come to terms with it collectively with other people. But how can we communicate certain feelings and messages to people in a way in which we can share them? Maybe sometimes it's not our words, but somebody else's. Maybe it's not our story, but somebody else's. As in theater, which is a very powerful way to communicate and translate. Last November, fellow radio gagger Sarah Lilly and I were very fortunate to take part in the annual performances of Enough Plays to End Gun Violence. Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that and a little bit about what's coming up in the next month for us? Thanks, Sean. These plays are written by high school students from all across the country. They cover every different subject that you can imagine about gun violence. There is a, there's a young woman who is a, a victim of a school shooting and it follows the play follows her through her life. That's a lightning strike. There's a play about the principal's office and the manic attempts that we adults make to supposedly keep people safe, keep children safe with more weapons and uh, words that really have no meaning. There's a play about a mother and father who just lost their trans son and are packing up the things in his dorm room, in her dorm room, packing up those things and saying goodbye to their child who was killed by a gun. So it really covers the whole gamut and it really feels like we are expressing the stories of youth from all across America when we're working on these plays. Did you have a favorite um, that you picked out, Sean, when we were when we produced it in November? I would have to say uh, it would be the first play, The Matter at Hand, which is the play in the principal's office, because it is both a hysterical satire 
And at the same time, it's the kind of story and the way that it's written, it's going to make your jaw drop. It's really quite true in its representation to an extent. And it's also very upsetting. So I think not, not just from the good, clever writing and your very wonderful direction and the great cast that we had with the short, I think the fact that it touches on so many different themes it makes it funny but also you know underscores the seriousness of it and we get a good idea that something very shocking and not normal is going on here in this world and in this matter at hand as the title suggests so that that's my favorite one yeah yeah well we are performing these plays at theater for the new city that's 155 first avenue in new york city and the plays are going to be presented february 22nd to the 25th the 22nd to the 24th the show is at 8 p.m and at 7 45 we're going to have some special music presentations for each evening and then on sunday the 25th the uh, performance is at 3 p.m it's a matinee and we'll also have some music at uh, 2 45. so we are really hoping that you'll come out uh, that you can support our project that uh, these voices of youth from all across the united states will be heard because as some of the characters say why is this still going on? And the answer is because we have not changed it. No. And I think that um, theater and uh, telling these stories and these presentations is a very good way to talk to audiences, you know, by way of this story and these experiences. And of course, there was a positive response back in November and I'm certainly hoping that you know we you know can reach out to more people and you know if nothing else they in their own lives can start a conversation too because it doesn't hurt to have a conversation we've got to be able to talk about this before we can change it and that's one thing that enough plays to end gun violence really does well so thank you michael cody the uh director from um chicago and thank you to uh, manuel oliver for partnering to make this project real thank you to play scripts for publishing the plays and thank you to all of these wonderful playwrights so please come and visit us at uh, theater for the new city 155 first avenue between february 22nd and february 25th and see these wonderful plays we'd love to have you to find out more about working with us please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at gaze against guns new york on facebook and instagram or gag no guns on twitter we meet once a month at the lbgtq center on 13th street in manhattan and on zoom our next meeting is february 22nd please email gagsignup at gmail.com that's g-a-g-s-i-g-n-u-p at gmail.com and we'll provide you with a zoom link and details for our next meeting february 22nd at 7 p.m everybody is welcome at any and all gag events and you can donate to gays against guns currently we are producing a documentary about gays against guns by filmmaker paul rowley and preparing for our bloody Valentine action on February 14th. You can contribute any amount 
on our webpage, gazegainstguns.net. It's time to end our show. Thanks for listening. And we are back with a new episode almost every week. Please share this special one hour episode. Are you safer with a gun with your friends and family members and any community members that you think could use it and are actually considering purchasing a weapon or perhaps they already own one and they want to know how to be safer. There's a lot of instruction here, as you know, from listening. So please share these resources. We're on SoundCloud, any podcast platform, you know that. Share with your friends and neighbors. We'll all become safer. Our upcoming shows are going to continue a series on the economic and social costs of gun violence. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on any major podcast platform. Our shows are also featured on Brick, Brooklyn Free Speech Radio. Please subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when new shows drop. And we leave you with our fabulous singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. We wanna take your gun!